Welcome to the Neanderthal Mind, bringing you riveting, educational, humorous, and sometimes serious perspectives on how our Neanderthal ancestors' will to survive still has a profound effect on our modern mind, body, and soul. Take a journey with us as we roll back the clock thousands of years to discuss all aspects of our Neanderthal ancestors. All right, my fellow cave dwellers, if you're ready, let's get this wheel rolling. Now here's your host and the leader of the pack, Anthony Yokolano. Well, hello, my cave dwellers, and welcome to Season 2 of the Neanderthal Mind. I, of course, am your host, Anthony Yokolano. I want to welcome most of you back, and as well, welcome all newcomers to the cave dweller community. Wow, wow, what a first season for the Neanderthal Mind. Thank you all to my faithful listeners for an awesome start into the realm of podcasting, as well as to the realm of Neanderthal life. I had a lot of super fantastic guests last season, and the way it's looking this far, a whole heck of a lot more fantastic guests coming up this season. It's going to be so exciting. We have a lot to catch up with in the Neanderthal world. So many awesome discoveries and new studies revealing so much more about our Neanderthal cousins. I cannot wait to unpack it all with my guest this season. So the first episode is with Dr. Neil Bakoven. Dr. Bakoven is an award-winning PhD geologist, journalist, and author who earned his doctorate in geoscience from the University of Texas at Austin. His current interests, which is why I had him on the Neanderthal Mine, center on the interaction between early modern humans and Neanderthals during the Paleolithic Age and the amazing related discoveries being made through archaeology and ancient DNA analysis. Neil has been the featured speaker at geological and anthropological societies, let's try it again, geological and anthropological societies all over this beautiful country. His Facebook page, at author Neil Bachoven, has 16,000 followers, and his posts reach as many as 330,000 people. In addition to his two novels, Moktu and the Mammoth People, and the People Eaters, he, he has also published a related children's science book titled When We Met Neanderthals. So, without taking up any more of your precious time, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I will see you on the flip side, cave dwellers. Well, good evening, Dr. Bakovan. How are you, sir? Good evening to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you joining me. Well, it's a pleasure. I always like talking about Paleo humans, Neanderthals, and early modern humans. Good, good. Yeah, with me, I I, I started the uh, podcast without any experience at all in in Neanderthals, but uh, I just had a strong interest in them and uh, you know how they influenced what we are today and who we are today, you know, and how we are today, basically. Um, 
and I just figured, well, I'll start the podcast. I don't know much, but you know, at least I can get the experts on, and <laughs> I can learn as as well as you know, present some good material to my uh, my cave dweller community, as I call them. So, <laughs> there is a good book. Uh, there's a bunch of good books, but there's one that actually fits your the name of your podcast, and it's called uh, Let's see, Think Like a Neanderthal. Oh, okay. It was written, yeah, and it's. Uh, I've got it somewhere. I, I didn't bring it in with me, uh, but uh, yeah, I can send you the link or the uh, particulars on that later. Yeah, absolutely. Think like a Neanderthal. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it would fit right in with me. So, well, um, again, I, I appreciate you being willing to come on with me, and and I apologize for that uh, snafu with the scheduling. I don't know what happened with that, but uh, yeah, oh, I no work. Yeah, I work at nine to five. So... Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. That's that's pretty good. Well, congratulations the, on book this. writing takes uh, and marketing especially takes a ton of time. Though, oh, so, yeah. uh, I'm sure. I bet yeah. you. The writing is fun. The research is fun. The marketing not so much. So. <laughs> yeah, well, one of those necessary evils, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll get right into it. Typically, I'll start off with just like I'm sure everyone else does, is, you know, tell, t- tell my cave dweller community a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I'm Neil Bakoven. I um, have a PhD in geology from the University of Texas at Austin. I uh, retired several years back, and uh, one of my pleasures was doing research on a number of different topics, and I found myself more and more uh, doing research on Neanderthals and these, at that time, the new Denisovans, which almost nobody had heard about. And um, and my wife is named Denise, so that was quite funny. I, I mean, I, I love telling her that they were more primitive than Neanderthals. And so, um, but at any rate, um, I got to where I was writing all sorts of notes and I ended up with dozens and dozens and dozens of pages of notes. And at some point in there, I I realized there was a really cool story to be told. I'm a big Jean All fan. I read all of her books, uh, especially liked her first two or three books. Um, But, and I've actually written to her. I sent her uh, my book and she thanked me for it and told me she appreciated it very much. And, uh, Gave me a real nice letter and very nice comments. So uh, anyway, she's a big idol of mine. And, uh, but I realized that based on the genetics and all the research I was doing that the racial roles were reversed, that we were freshly out of Africa and um, we were the darker skin ones. We weren't the Daryl Hannah's. Remember Daryl Hannah played in her movie <laughs> and, uh, and they, the Neanderthals had been in Ice Age Europe for over a quarter million years, and they were the, they were very variable, but they were the lighter skin on average, and they had a variety of hair colors, most likely anything from brown to perhaps blonde to to darker. So, uh, I just found it all fascinating, and I found myself writing one day, and and my wife looked over several months later, and said, "What are you doing over there?" And I said, "Um." It's too early to tell you. I don't know where this is going. And so uh, anyway, I, uh, it, it worked out really well. It's a really cool story. So, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, good, good. And I, I've had a few authors. I've had uh, 
E.A. Meggs. I don't know if you've if you've had a chance oh, to yeah. read her books. Yeah, yeah, she's a friend of mine. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I've had her yeah. on the podcast. Uh, Rebecca Rag Sykes, and you know, that's, that's really, my, you've yeah, had, yeah, yeah. Look at this. That's one of my <laughs> Is favorite that it? books. Kindred, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. All of them were fantastic. And I, I've just been consuming your books lately, too, and uh, uh, finding it just it, it just fascinates me how authors can develop stories around, you know, the, the discoveries of our ancestors. It, it kind of draws you in. And, you know, that's what I always told, uh, you know, E.A. Meggs and uh, Rebecca Rags as well, that, uh, you know, the way that the story is written as well as yours, it kind of draws me in and it teaches me along the way, you know, and I really, I really appreciate that and like that. So. Well, thanks for that. That's oh, thank you. Thank you. Good to Definitely. hear. <laughs> so then let's get into, uh, oh, well, you know what? You had mentioned an author, um, Diane All. Is that what her name was? Jean All. Jean All. Jean All. Yeah, uh, I've got her book here too. Her first book, um, was clan of the cave bear oh okay that, okay all right very good yeah and uh it uh she really it was written in 1980 and she was way ahead of her time you know yeah. no genetics had been done back then she was way ahead of her time that yes we did indeed uh interact and breed with uh, neanderthals and had hybrid children and um I, I give her just tons of credit for breaking the ice on all that. She got a few things wrong, of course, being, was that, 40 years ago. So uh, we can get into that, but uh, she's she's a big idol of mine. So. She definitely got the uh, the interest rolling, you know, the interest in the Neanderthal rolling. Yeah. I know, uh, you know, again, a lot of the, a lot of the um, uh, guests that I interview have absolutely read her books as well, you know, so... Yeah, she's definitely got the interest. Yeah. So the next question I was going to ask is when did your and and when did your path into paleoanthropology start? Well, again, after I retired, um, I started reading up on it, and I'll just I'll just tell you one quick story that sure, I just found astounding, and that is the Denisovans, and so. Uh, we knew nothing, absolutely, we didn't even know they existed right. in 2010. We knew nothing about them. And so in Siberia, in this cave called Denisova Cave, uh, researchers have, have dug up a tiny little finger bone, that little bone right there, pea-sized little bone, and three teeth. <laughs> wow. And so they're, they know Neanderthals are in the strata below, uh, Homo sapiens are in the strata above. Well, which were these? Homo sapien, I mean, Neanderthal or Homo sapien. Well, they got a good DNA extraction out of that tiny little bone, Crazy. a full, full genome, <laughs> and uh, blew their minds. It yeah. was neither. It was a whole new species we knew nothing about. They were more primitive than Neanderthals, and they differed from Neanderthals about as much as Neanderthals differ from us. Well, so that's mind-blowing in and of itself. <laughs> but here's the real kicker. Denise events have contributed more to the human homo sapien gene, gene pool, at least in Southeast Asia, than Neanderthals have anywhere. And we knew nothing about them 10 or 11 years ago. And so we still know very little about them. We've sure. collected a few bones that we think are theirs, but uh, that's the kind of earth shattering news that I was doing research on. One more. Okay, so 
I'm, I'm researching. We got some good things from Neanderthals and some not so good things. From the Neanderthals, we got a better immune system. But later in life, that stronger immune system can kick in and cause us autoimmune diseases. Well, yeah. and I was reading about it and I found oh, higher chance of lupus, higher chance of uh, uh, um, what were, okay, type 2 diabetes. How common is that these days? And then higher chance of Crohn's disease. Well, that blew my mind. I have Crohn's disease and I, I, I may have gotten that from my Neanderthal genes. That just <laughs> stunned me. Yeah. And uh, it's it, the, the cool thing about it or the sort of the sad thing when you think about it is that those later in life problems didn't affect Neanderthals because right. as John Hawk says, more than two thirds of Neanderthals died before reaching age 30. So uh, it's, you know, some of them did make it. We have the skeleton in, uh, in France and a skeleton in uh, Iraq of older Neanderthals. So some did make it into older age, but, uh, but for the most part, they didn't. And, and just, just like I said, I, I don't never had much experience in Neanderthals or, or paleoanthropology, but uh, just getting into it, it, it just, it does amaze me how much, uh, how like with so much advanced technology that we're just finding so many new things out about our, you know our oh, ancestors. Yeah. It's just if it's I were I'm amazing. a geologist and I love geology, but if I were doing it right now, I'd go into anthropology because of the uh, ancient DNA analysis. We're learning, we're blowing the doors off yeah. with all the learnings that we're getting, and and. In uh, this book, which is another great book, Who We Are and How We Got Here by David Reich. Okay, yeah. Um, it's fascinating. Well, he talks about just how in 2010, Svante Pabo did two full genome, that's the three billion base pairs. Before that, we'd had some mitochondrial DNA analyses, that's only 16,000 base pairs. So it's tiny, but there's some cool things you can learn from mitochondrial DNA. But, but before 2010, we had no full genomes analyzed from the ancient data set. And Svante Pablo did too, he did the Neanderthal genome. And that's where we found out, yeah, we had interbred with Neanderthals. And then he also did the Denisova the Denisovan one. So, but, and then Robert Reich and uh, Eska Willerslev, those were probably the two other labs or, or leaders of the other labs that uh, got into it. And so that first year in 2010, they did five analyses, uh, full genome analyses. A couple of years later, they had done 14 in a year. A couple of years later, uh, it was 49 in a year. Well, in 2018, uh, David Reich's lab alone was doing over 3,000 a year. And they can't even keep up with publishing on it because they're getting so much new information, really cool information in. So that's why I would go into anthropology if I had it to do at this time. It's just fascinating to me. We're learning so much. Yeah, and it's it's coming so fast, you know, the, just the just the new discoveries. It's and that's that was like a, always a uh, 
uh, I guess a question I posed to, uh, you know, the, the, the other authors I had spoken with was, you know, how hard is it to adapt to so much new discoveries coming out so fast? Like you write a book or you write a chapter and then you got to go back and change it or you, know, <laughs> you got to add yeah. an addendum to it or something, you know? Well, and I do. Um, by the way, this is my book or my first book, Mark Two and the Mammoth People. And at the back, there are over, there are 130 annotated references that will document with peer-reviewed um, research, basically everything I'm telling you. And it documents that basically everything in the book very well could have happened. And uh, that's what I found so cool about writing this new story is it was Gene All with all the new data and uh, it's just been a mind blower. I love it. You probably, well, it probably comes out that I'm, I gush about it. <laughs> so. and that's, that's fantastic. Love that. And, you know, definitely you can feel the excitement and the, you know, the love for it from you without a doubt. But now that you had brought that up, let's, let's get into your books. So now the first one was Mach 2 and the Mammoth People. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, it's Mach 2 and the Mammoth People. And um, it's a, it's a novel, uh, but it is based on fact. And um, it starts with a homo sapien uh, young man and his tribe and all the inner tribe problems and rivalries that are going on there. And then later on, he's, um, he has some difficulties out on his own and he is uh, captured by Neanderthals and he's brought back to help, but he is enslaved by them. Um, along the way, he meets uh, a wonderful character named Effie, or F is, is, was, all my Neanderthal names are one syllable. Uh, most of my Homo sapien names are, are at least two syllables. And, um, but he calls her Effie and uh, falls in love with her uh, and she with him and they have a hybrid child. And by the way, it's a, a hybrid child named Elka, which means united or to unite in Basque. And the reason there are about two dozen Basque words in my book, um, because uh, Basque is likely the most um, similar language to what our early, uh, early uh, mig migratory uh, Homo sapiens spoke when they came into Europe. And there's, there's scientific evidence for that. First of all, it's the oldest language in Western Europe. But moreover, the Basque, peop, um, the, R, the Basque people have a very high percentage of the R1B haplogroup. And that's a set of genes or gene expressions that seem to travel together. Well, they more than 90% of Basque have the R1B haplogroup. Well, it originated in the Paleolithic time frame, the time frame of our book, of my book. And uh, the Basques, as I say, have over 90% of them have it. Elsewhere in Europe, it's only 20%. So uh, that's why I've chosen Basque words for a lot of my, uh, my homo sapien names and, and places. And for instance, uh, their home, um, Shelter is called Etza, which means in Basque, et, uh, means home. And, uh, and the Norean people are, mean mine or my people. So um, 
that's how I came up with some of those the terms in there. It just adds another layer of authenticity to the book. Yeah, and I like that. But I don't want, just real quick, I don't want people to get the idea that this is a science book. It's a <laughs> just a good, solid read. It's got action and adventure, sex and violence, drama and love <laughs> stories, all the good stuff. So, and it's, uh, I'll just tell you, it's getting, getting really good. Let's see if you can focus in on that. It's getting get really good reviews. Um, yes. And, and these are by um, the unbiased Amazon Vine reviews. And uh, Amazon Vine is when uh, Amazon reviewers review and, and the best reviewers get the most thumbs up. Hey, that was helpful. Well, uh, they, they can be brutal, but Amazon Vine has given Mokto and the Mammoth people 4.7 stars out of five, and that's over 30 of them uh, from Amazon Vine. Wow. And I've gotten uh, another 100 or so uh, reviews from uh, Amazon readers, and they're all, it's all above 4.5. So really good reviews, um, both men and women. And uh, if you don't mind, let me read two of them. Absolutely. Three Go for it. Yeah. Yes, please. Okay. Well, first of all, this, this story is captivating. I think Bakoven could be the new all, you know, that really made me happy. <laughs> uh, here's one uh, from a man. Wow. Did this book take some sharp twists and turns? This book was always on my mind. You're in for a wild adventure that's going to leave you stunned when you close the book for the last time. And, and just to point out that this isn't a, men, a men's only book, this is from a woman. Phenomenal, an awesome, awesome book. Absolutely brilliant. So those are Amazon Vine. They don't know me, I don't know them. So uh, just totally unbiased. Anyway, great reviews. I think people are gonna like it if they, if they pick it up. Well, right now I'm on chapter 23 of it. I did the audible version of it because it's just because I work oh, all day. Cool. And then, so I do the yeah. audible side of it. So yeah, thus far, without a doubt, it's a, it's a five star for me so far. And, uh, oh, and like terrific. referring back to how you, you know, you, you were talking about the, the, uh, um, the names and the language that you're referring to. I like how you explained that in the beginning of the book as well you know, to, to tell me that this is why you came across these names and use these terms or whatever it is. So I like that a lot. So, so far, so good. I, I absolutely. I think it gets better at the, I mean, it gets more exciting as it goes along. You know, there's a little bit of, you got to set the stage and yeah. explain the characters and the places and so forth, but um, it goes pretty quickly. And yeah. Now, how long did it, actually not a question I was going to ask, but I might as well, how long did it take you to uh, get that book on to, to the shelves? Well, uh, after, I did about two years of research, frankly, okay. and then uh, the writing of it took about nine months. Oh. And then uh, to get it on actually on the shelves and into Amazon was probably another year. Wow. But, uh, it was edited by four or five people. <laughs> and uh, then it's all the typesetting and formatting and yeah. Uh, just oh, by the way, it has some pictures in it too. Um, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's got ten pictures in there. I'll just. Uh, yes. Yeah, I like to see them because, yeah, like I said, I have see. the audible version, so I can't see the pictures. So. <laughs> oh, is that right? Yes. Okay. Well, um, they don't come through, but that one you can see the handprints on the wall. Oh, okay. I've got a really, 
a really cool story about that. And that does show up in the book. Um, and then uh, that is a homotherium. That's the European version of the saber-toothed cat. And that shows up in the book. And then, oh, uh, this is the oldest musical instrument ever found. That's a vulture bone flute. Okay. Uh, 40,000 years old, found in Germany. Wow. And then this is uh, one of the coolest pictures. It's not in color, all the rest are in color. But that is a skeleton that was found uh, a couple hundred kilometers east of Moscow. And it had 13,000 ivory beads on it that are estimated to have taken um, five years of work, 40 hour work weeks. It took five years of work to get all those beads made and then they buried them with him. So that was a very important guy. Now, how um, old is that skeleton? That skeleton, I believe, is about 18,000 years old. Wow. It's Homo sapien. Okay. Yeah. Well, is that, so again, not to take anything away from Mach 2 and the mammoth people, you also have when we met Neanderthals, huh? Oh, yeah. Let's see. That is a children's science book. And uh, it has been strongly endorsed by Daryl DeRyder, pardon me, who is uh, the head of the anthropology department at Texas A&M. I'll just read what he writes. Uh, yes. This absorbing book is filled with interesting facts about what might have happened when the first humans like us arrived in Europe and met our Neanderthal cousins already living there some 45,000 years ago. I think children will find it quite enjoyable and I look forward to reading it to my own. He's got some <laughs> young kids. He's a great guy. Um, anyway, uh, good reviews. It's a colorful picture story. And in it, on every, on every page is a science corner. And that's the vulture bone flute, for instance. And uh, it talks about how the teeth on both Neanderthals and modern, early modern humans at the time show these little grooves that indicate periodic malnutrition. And here is uh, Maktu saying to his mother, our people are so hungry. Hungry, I I'm awfully tired of eating mice, mother. I wish I could have caught more lizards. Well, of course, the boys love that kind of stuff. And <laughs> this is getting really good reviews. It's got uh, mammoths and saber-toothed cats in it, wolves, and and uh, it's uh, it talks about what what might have caused Neanderthals to go extinct. And I have a, uh, it's not in that book, but I have a, an acronym I'll leave with the people tonight. Um, they suffered a Kodak moment. And by Kodak moment, uh, we killed some of them. And, and we've got really good evidence of that, that um, Stephen Churchill, a Duke investigator, has, has done analysis of a groove on a, a Neanderthal rib in Iraq and determined that it was likely caused by a thrown spear from an atlatl. Well, the Neanderthals didn't have atlatls or, or spear throwers. So it was probably one of our times that we killed some of them. So we killed some of them. We outcompeted them, partly because we had the atlatl. 
Um, according to uh, another author I highly recommend is um, Pat Shipman. She wrote a book called The Invaders, How Humans and Their Dogs Drove Neanderthals to Extinction. She makes a pretty strong case that we may have domesticated wolves and that that helped us outcompete Neanderthals. And so it, at any rate, for a variety of reasons, we outcompeted them for the best caves and the best game and so forth. Uh, the D is we brought disease to them. We were freshly out of the tropics of Africa and we had diseases, even with their better immune system, we had diseases like measles and tuberculosis and so forth that they weren't, that they'd never seen before. Yeah. And um, we likely caused a die off um, because of that. And then uh, the A is our larger population likely absorbed, well, we know it absorbed their smaller one. We know that happened to some degree because you and I and every person of uh, non-African descent carries about 2%, plus or minus a percent or two. And uh, even Africans carry Neanderthal genes. They found that most of that probably happened from an echo where our people migrated out of Africa we interbred with Neanderthals, and then some of our people went back to Africa and interbred with some of the Africans, delivering some Neanderthal genetics to them. So we, uh, we our large population absorbed their smaller one, and then the climate, the sea is climate. Our, the climate became incredibly more severe because of the Campanian ignimbrite explosion. It's a big volcano that went off near Naples, uh, Italy, your neck of the woods, and uh, and it it is the third or roughly the third most powerful volcanic eruption in the whole world in the last million years, and uh, it undoubtedly killed some of us and killed some of them outright. But moreover, it seems to have brought on what's called a Heinrich Four event, where thousands of icebergs break off the northern ice sheet and float along the coast of Europe, chilling an already ice age cold Europe. It was brutally cold and Neanderthals didn't make it across that boundary. They, they can find that ash layer all over Europe. They don't find any Neanderthal remains below that. And they do above, I'm sorry, above it. And they, and they find plenty below it. Below and it. so that's the Kodak moment. Um, I think all of it, played a role to some degree. I think we were the main culprits though. So wait, now the, the reason so I say that is everywhere we show up on the scene, other human species tend to die out. Yes. Whether it's Homo floresiensis, the Hobbit people, probably Homo erectus was around when we came into Asia, the Denisovans. Uh, some people have estimated that there were eight other Homo sapien type humans around when we, a couple of them in uh, Africa, Homo naledi. Um, by the way, uh, Gerald Ryder, the guy that endorsed this, he has uh, been a very um, good researcher on Homo naledi, which is in the Rising Star Cave in South Africa. They found hundreds and hundreds of bones um, where these humans, with a brain about the size of an orange were apparently systematically disposing or interring their dead yes. in these deep 
caves. And so um, fascinating stuff. But oh, that's, uh, that's Lee that, Bur Berger, right? That's Lee Berger. That's Lee on? Berger has done the most. In fact, Lee Berger tried to go down into the rising star and he got stuck oh. because uh, there's a there's about a nine inch little seam you have to get through for about yeah. nine feet and in pitch black darkness and he couldn't make it in there. He, he hired, um, a, I think seven very small women yeah. were the, they were the champions and the heroes of, that made it down into the cave and were able to uh, do the extraction of some of these bones and some of the research on them. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. I, I emailed him, uh, trying to get him onto the podcast. So hopefully he responds, and I get to. Yeah, get he's him a on rock here. star. Yeah, I hope you get it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So the the touch on to, to go to touch a little more on your book. So the children's book is basically Mach two and the Mammoth People, but just the children's version. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it doesn't have uh, nearly as much violence. It, it has a little bit of drama, but okay, it's meant for roughly a 10 year old plus or minus five years. So sure. younger kids, I've heard people tell me that their two or three year olds have, have really enjoyed it. Okay, so. good. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, so the, the other love you had that led you before Neanderthals is geology. And I, I absolutely love geology. I love rock formations. I grew up along the Monongahela River, Southwestern Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, from where I grew up across the river, there's just sheer rock cliffs. And I think that's what created my love for just the, the rock formations and, you know, seeing all the veins running through there. I just, I love everything and anything about rock formations. So. Well, it's my first love. Um, as I say, if I were going into things now, I'd probably be in anthropology just yeah. because of the ancient DNA analysis, but I love geology too. And I do a, um, Facebook page at author Neil Bakoven. Okay. And uh, it has um, postings mostly of paleo uh, anthropology and archaeology, but it has quite a bit of geology uh, in there as well. And uh, it's uh, grown in just two and a half years. It, I didn't even know what Facebook was <laughs> um, two and a half years ago. It, it's grown from zero to 16,000 followers just because wow. the, I think people really are fascinated by this kind of topic. And um, I'll have to tell you a funny story about that. Uh, I, my publicist said, Neil, you're going to have to get on social media. And I said, oh, please, no. I, uh, uh, but I, I got on there and I, I started with Facebook and I said, oh, okay, there's some people I can friend, 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 all these people that have put in friend requests. And so my friend, Jeff Eckert, calls up uh, shortly thereafter and he says, Neil, Thanks for friending me after four years. So uh, he, <laughs> he he had been on Facebook a lot longer than I have. But at any rate, um, people are uh, really interested in this stuff. There yes. are other face, uh, Facebook pages concerning anthropology out there, some of whom don't have 16,000 followers. Some of them have 480,000 followers. Wow. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of interest in the subject. There is. And and I honestly, I, I never realized, like, I just always had an interest in it. I guess what brought my interest, I was always a, uh, like a people watcher. That's what my mom was. I was a mama's boy. So I got into the whole people watching thing and, you know, just trying to figure out why they do what they do and how they do it. And then I was listening to a podcast one day and they, they had mentioned, well, you know, we act the way we do because of our Neanderthal ancestors. 
And I thought, man, you know what? Okay, that makes sense. I'm going to let me get into that and see what I can learn about it. You know, so I figured I'll start a podcast yeah. about it and I'll learn along the way. So, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. Well, yeah, I'm about two and a half percent Neanderthal. So uh, according to my 23 and me, and um, <laughs> I, I read an article about uh, a guy, uh, what was his name? I want to say it was James Fallows or something like that, that uh, he's on he's on Google. You can go and he supposedly 23 and me had told him that he had the highest amount they'd ever seen. And it was about 5%. Wow. So that mostly I'd ever heard of, we varied between one and 4%. Yeah. Well, this guy had about 5%. So. Wow. <laughs> that, I, I would claim that if I found that out too, that would be pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> so now let's, okay, well, I guess let's touch one more time on your books. Now, what did you use? Well, I guess, what was your biggest and this would actually go for something towards the end that I was going to ask you. What what did you use mostly for your research for the books? Like uh, just I use the internet, and I um, I uh, there's you can address so many scientific papers out there. And, yeah. Um, as I I my original book had over 400 annotated references in it at the end, and my publisher wow. said, you know, you can't have that many. And so I cut it down to 130. Um, but it documents all this stuff about um, how Neanderthals did give us proclivities for lupus and Crohn's yeah. disease and how Denisovans are, they make up 6% of the genome of Southeast Asians. And wow. uh, just even little things like how people back how paleo uh, Indian or Native American and uh, paleo humans probably had their children by squatting. I mean, just there are so many different references. Uh, I had a reference about uh, psychedelic mushrooms in there because that plays a role in the book. And so uh, <laughs> just uh, all sorts of really cool stuff. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you think about all the, and we can even go back to the Native Americans where you know, all the rituals and all, all the, the things that they believed, well, they had to get that from somewhere, right? right. <laughs> I mean, it, it had right. to be carried on and passed on. I, I actually had uh, someone that I had emailed, you know, asking them for to come on, uh, you know, for an interview. And they said that they wouldn't come on my podcast because I refer to Neanderthals as our ancestors and they don't believe Neanderthals are our ancestors. So I was like, well, I mean, if that's what you believe, okay. I mean, you can still well, come on cousins. and talk about they, it. But... They weren't, they're our cousins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we branched off of uh, Homo erectus. They branched off earlier than we did. We branched off later. And so they're cousins to us, but they're not our direct ancestors. Okay. So I guess you're kind of both right in that regard. Sure. Okay. But, and then I guess just they're, with the whole title of it, it kind of just, it's just, to, just to, to start the conversation about Neanderthals, you know? So right. <laughs> hopefully that person decides that they, you know, they're okay with coming on and, and having a chat with me about it. That's fine. I hope so. <laughs> so, um, well, you know what, let's, let's jump to, I know you wanted to talk about your three uh, paleo human mysteries. I know we touched a little oh, yeah. bit on them. I'll, yeah. uh, I, I do a talk. I've done a talk to about 20 different groups, uh, mostly geological societies of California and Denver, I mean, uh, Rocky Mountain and Corpus and Austin and so forth. Um, and 
the three mysteries are, did we interbreed with Neanderthals? And of course the answer is yes. And um, then I get into what did we get out of the deal? And um, we, I go into all the three different types of DNA, ancient DNA analysis, the mitochondrial DNA, which is 16,000 base pairs. And we, that is only passed from mothers to daughters. And then there's Y chromosome DNA. It's about 57,000 base pairs. It's only passed from fathers to sons. And then you have the, the monster, the 3 billion base pairs. That's the whole genome. Um, and of course, that's passed down the line. Um, but when you have all three of those together, you can learn some incredible things that you would, that we just flat never would know otherwise. And for instance, sometime around between 9,000 and 5,000 years ago, the, there was a big drop off in the male population. And they can tell that because the mitochondrial DNA, which is a proxy for female population growth, it goes up, 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 un, unimpinged. The, the uh, Y chromosome DNA, which is the proxy for um, male population, it goes up and then it has this huge drop off that, that gets down to its low around 5,000 years ago, and then it builds back up. Well, um, in Nature Journal, which is a really prestigious journal that gets a lot of peer review and so forth, um, researchers there in the, uh, had an article in 2018 that said at the low, the male population had suffered so much that there were 17 males for every female in, in, in Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, and they theorized that that was probably due to genocide of males, a set of uh, invaders coming into Europe, sweeping into Europe from the, the, the steppes and wiping out all the males along the way and keeping the women for themselves. And so, uh, but, and, and the mitochondrial and Y chromosome DNA can document that now, but it's something we would never know otherwise. And that's, so that's, that's all in, wrapped into session number one, did we interbreed with Neanderthals and how do we know and so forth. Um, number two is why did Neanderthals die off so quickly after we arrived on the scene in Europe 45,000 years ago? They'd been there a quarter million years. They'd, they'd weathered all sorts of weather, severe weather and wild animals and uh, changing environments and so forth. And we get there and they're gone in about 3,000 years out of all of Europe. So what happened there? To me, it's the biggest cultural mystery of our of our heritage. And so, um, and that I get into those five, uh, the Kodak moment kind of things on that one. And then the last one is, this is a really cool one. How can it be possible that an Australian, Aboriginal Australian can is more genetically similar to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Scandinavian then one African tribesman is to a person in a different African tribe. How can that possibly be true? And it's all related to our whole genetic diversity was contained within Africa for a long time. And a small subset of that made it out roughly 70,000 years ago. And 
in, in a wave or two or three anyway. And uh, a variety of people have pegged that at being around 300 individuals with their relative lack of genetic diversity. Well, they populated Europe and Asia. And so uh, with their relative lack of genetic diversity, that's why uh, an Aboriginal Australian is more genetically similar to a Scandinavian than a Bantu is to a, a Khoisan and, or virtually any African tribe is to a different African tribe. Really cool stuff there. Um, let me tell you one more thing that yeah, I just, I just yes. love this story. Actually, there's two more stories. That's fine. Uh, I don't, Keep going. <laughs> I, you, you, like in Neanderthals, you have to know how they got their name. I, I do, and, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> okay, so... Um, but you can, you can tell it, you can tell it, definitely, just in case. Yeah. Well, Joachim Neander was a German theologian in the mid-1600s, and he died early of tuberculosis uh, at age 30, um, but before he died, he had written more than 40 hymns for the church. And some of those are still sung very popular in, in churches today. Well, people loved him and they named a valley after him. And so in German, a valley is a tall, so it was Neanderthal. Well, 200 years later, workmen are digging in the Neanderthal and they come across some odd shaped bones and they send them, uh, they have a variety of of uh, scientists come in to view them, one of whom is uh, Rudolf Virchow. He, he wrote over 2,000 papers about the study of diseases and what it does to bodies and how, it, how disease deforms it. Well, he looks at the, these bones and he says, well, that's obviously a Russian Cossack soldier who suffered from rickets. That's why he was bent over and and he strained his, he was in such pain that he strained and that's why he got the big eyebrows. And uh, so it's, everybody seems to put things in, into their frame of reference. And so uh, Rudolf Virchow, one real quick side story on Rudolf Virchow. He was a German um, reformer and Chancellor Otto von Bismarck hated the guy and challenged him to a duel. Well, this guy knew everything. He knew nothing about weaponry, but he knew a lot about parasitology. So as his being the challenged person, he got to pick the weapon and he chose sausages. One was a pristine sausage and the other was loaded with, with parasites. And uh, Otto von Bismarck withdrew his challenge at that point. So that's kind of a cool story. But anyway, so back to the story of how Neanderthals got their name. Well, so um, there was a lot of push to call these people homo stupidus. By the way, that's about within two years of when um, Darwin's Origin of the Species came out. And once that came out, people said, wow, these, these could be a different species. And that was mind-blowing to people at the time because um, they've been taught every everywhere by every direction that we were the only ones around. And so it was mind blowing for them that there might've been another human species around. Well, they wondered whether to call them homo stupidus, which I think says, I think says a lot about the arrogance of homo sapiens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they settled on homo neanderthalensis where the bones were found. And uh, that's all cool, but uh, Here's the part that sends chills down my spine. Neand the 
the Neander, the name Neander comes from, uh, it's a Greek translation of um, his name means new man. So unknowingly, they named these Valley of the New Man. <laughs> How mind-blowing is that? It, yes, and, yes. Uh, so, so that's one uh, story about uh, Neanderthals. One more story, and I'll, I'll stop and no, let you No, keep ask going. Keep going. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I showed you the, the handprint yes. picture. Well, our people and Neanderthals, too, love making handprints on the cave walls. And... Um, we find those in Argentina. The picture I showed you is actually from Argentina, about 13,000 years old. But the oldest ones are over in Indonesia, about 40, 45,000 years old. And of course, most of the caves in, uh, in Europe have handprints as well. So people love leaving their handprints. Um, well, most of them are left handprints. And does that mean these people were left-handed? Well, we don't think so. We think they were doing their own hand. They'd take a tube of red ochre and animal fat and charcoal and blow the outline of their hand. So that, that answers that. But here's the really cool part. Most of the handprints are those of women, not men. And we can tell that because in men, the ring finger is longer than the index finger. In women, they're more co-equal. And I mean, there's some variation there, but it generally works. Sure, right. So uh, they can tell that most of those handprints were those of women. Huh. And so that brings up the really intriguing question. What about the nearby paintings of, of aurochs and saber-toothed cats and mammoths and horses and bears? And were those done by women? I'd, I'd say the answer is, yeah. A fair percentage of them probably were. Yeah, so. yeah. Huh. I never, I, I never knew that about the hand. I just knew I've seen the handprints, but uh, yeah, I've never, never really learned the backstory or the the more in depth story about them. So that's that's pretty cool. Well, as you can tell, I love this stuff. Some people make the mistake of uh, of asking me about it and at a party, and and then they <laughs> <laughs> they say, "Oops, too late." <laughs> He's off and running. So. Love that. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I guess if you have an interest in it, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we, I love to hear everyone. Like I, I, you just, I ask you a question. You go as long as you want. You, you say whatever you want to talk about it. I, I, I love that. I'm, I'm trying my best to absorb all of it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if you want, you had side stories, you have another story, just keep on going. I love it. And, and again, I'm sure my cave dweller community loves it as well. So, but so, the one question I had too is, you know, you, you had mentioned it. Actually, I, I, I never knew the one part of the story about Neanders that they wanted to call them Neanders stupidit, stupidness or something oh, like yeah. that. Yeah. So, and I always ask my, my guest, why, why do you think our Neanderthal cousins were portrayed as like mindless dimwits. Why? I don't like they survived for like you said, two hundred fifty thousand years. I mean, why, why did we have that stereotype that they well, were mindless? They had bigger brain cases than we did. So um, there's that. But uh, the first, uh, actually, there were three sets of Neanderthal bones found: one in Belgium, one in uh, uh, Gibraltar, or some in, in uh, Belgium, some in Gibraltar, 
And by the way, this is a replica, a resin uh, 3D image of the, the Neanderthal skull from um, Gibraltar. And wow. so, uh, so, and by the way, that's a cool story too. I'll spin off one more time. That's I fine. Think, Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Belgium fossils were found first, but they weren't recognized as being a different species. Okay. The um, Gibraltar ones were, were found next. They weren't recognized. And even when the Neanderthal ones were found, they weren't recognized at first, but it was only after the origin of the species was published by Darwin that people began to say, hey, and, and some of these other fossils resurfaced and people said, yeah, that, what are the odds of, th of that happening over here in Belgium and, and Gibraltar? Well, in her book here, Rebecca Sykes talks about how if they had recognized that uh, these other bones were Neanderthals, then in Belgium, uh, we wouldn't be calling them Neanderthals. We'd be calling them Awirians. And if they had been first recognized from the Gibraltar bones, we'd be calling them Kalpacans. So again, her book is fascinating. That's, that's one of the little uh, footnotes in it. The footnotes are just about as interesting as the whole book. So uh, it's, uh, it's really good stuff. Yeah. You know, and it's like I always... I always focus on fate, F-A-T-E, you know, and then how far behind would we be if, you know, those, um, what, there were coal miners or something that found those bones, how far behind would we be on these discoveries if they just kind of buried them and left them alone? Yeah, you're right. Because of them, you know, bringing it to the yeah. attention, it, now, you know, it, that started a whole steamroll effect of, you know, what we know today about, you know, our Neanderthal. Uh, to get back to your, your question, though, um, the bones that were found in the Neanderthal, uh, at least some of them belong to an arthritic older Neanderthal, and he was bent over, and he had uh, problems on, on a variety of his skeletal that made people think these were stooped, hunched over, uh. Uh, brooding uh, ape-like animals and that's probably at least one of the reasons uh, why yeah. that we that we first thought or some people first thought they were not worthy uh, as worthy as we were yeah yeah you know and, and a lot of discoveries now too with uh you know potential uh, uh you know f funeral or, or burial uh you know events you know where you know again the stereotype was they you know died and they just left them lay wherever the heck they were you know it's it's it just just baffles me yeah. for whatever reason that we we still and there, there's still that stereotype you know and it's it's like so if we if we were to free our minds of that stereotype how many more discoveries could we make because of that you know where we don't think that you know they were smart enough to do these things it's 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 baffling. I, I fight that on my uh, Facebook page I fight that a lot where uh, for instance when when this small group or several small groups made it out of Africa, they probably took, uh, this was roughly 70,000 years ago, they probably took a beachcomber route along the coast and fought an island jumped all the way and they made it to Australia perhaps 60 plus thousand years ago. 
So in short order, they made it to Australia. Well, that last stretch, um, even with lowered sea levels, that last stretch involved 37 miles of open ocean. There's no way these people didn't have boats. These right. were smart, creative people, and they, they, they had to know how to saw, navigate they were problem too. solvers. But a lot of people can't believe that these people could have had boats or could have had jewelry or uh, they just think of them as primitive. For a yeah. long time, they didn't think that uh, Neanderthals or Homo erectus hunted. They thought they were scavengers if they just found <laughs> dead animals and they'd drive some of the wolves off and they'd eat the carcass. Well, yeah. then they found it in Schoenigen in Germany. It's a lignite mine. They found 40,000 horse bones and in amongst the horse bones, were flint chippings um, and the, some of the horse bones have been carved and they found actually 10 wooden spears hmm. that had been preserved by the lignite process. And uh, these spears were weighted one third, two thirds, perfect for throwing. And they've had uh, athletes replicate these and see how far they could throw them. And, and they could, you can throw with killing force from at least 65 feet away. And wow. so they, they think the Neanderthal, uh, not the Neanderthal, well, the Homo erectus or Homo heidelbergensis or proto-Neanderthals, it's about 300,000 years ago. Think of that, wood still preserved after 300,000 years. Amazing. Um, these people were obviously hunting. Yeah. And uh, that was and even before hardcore Neanderthals or, or uh, Neanderthal propers were around. They, Proto-Neanderthals, perhaps. Another guest I've had on a few times, uh, we call him Neanderthal Joe. He's a, he's a primitive, oh, yeah. he makes, yeah, he makes primitive weapons and uh, yeah, uh, tools and uh, clothing and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, that's interesting. My sister as well. sent me an atlatl kit where it had the, the shaft and I, I had to put a, not a flint tip on, but I had to put a tip on it. And then I had, they sent synthetic sinew. Yes. I had to put the fletching on and then wrap the, the stuff around there and tie it off. And, um, and it's, a lot of work. Out. it's a lot of work. Yeah, each, yeah. each shaft took me a better part of a day to, to do, but uh, I've taken those out with friends and we've thrown and uh, we threw for distance. This was just last weekend. We threw for distance and uh, both he and I could throw the atlatl, not with any accuracy, but we could throw it about 125 feet. So, uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, pretty they, good. It, it gives you a lot more range. Now with that, are we, so then that was the more, more of the modern humans that created that, correct? That invented that? Right. Is it? Okay. Right. To get back to, you know, how we keep on saying, you know, well, how did they die off? And, uh, you know, if, if you look at even recorded history, it's been proven that when you integrate uh, humans from different areas, so, let, so let's just say when, you know, uh, we came over to America and integrated with the Native Americans, they started dying off because of, you know, their bodies weren't used right. to the diseases that we brought over, you know? Right. So, to, to, to talk the Massachusetts about Indians, 
the Massachusetts Indians uh, had a 95% die-off. Wow. And in the settlers' journals, they talked about the providence of God um, bringing this great fortune to them of the die-off and the Indians. So wow. it left it left us with all the corn fields and yeah. and uh, it's just sad to think that yes. What, yeah. what we did to the Indian population. And Cortez, when he, he stopped in Africa and picked up some slaves, while well, his crew and the slaves among them, they had smallpox and measles and a variety of other diseases. Well, when they got to Mexico, the Aztecs were about 30 million strong, 30 million. And within a handful of years, they were down to 3 million. So they had about a 90% die-off. That's another slight interest of mine is the Aztecs. I just love to see, you know, the, the technology that they even used or created and, you know, how they just, how they lived. That's, uh, I love seeing that Dude, as well. I'm fascinated by Amazing. them too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, One more thing. I, I don't yeah, want to. No, uh, go for it. Keep going. Don't want to end without mentioning this. Um, my publicist, uh, well, I got good reviews from the talks I was giving. So my publicist wanted me to formalize that. And we are in the process of making um, YouTube videos. Each are gonna be about 12 minutes long. And the three mysteries are gonna be three separate videos. And uh, those should be done, um, I'm guessing in November timeframe. And okay. it's pretty cool stuff. I've, he's got, uh, we, I got a videographer that's going to come in another month or so, and he's bringing a light man, and um, we're, he's got guys that are hunting the internet for clips of running gazelles and skulls and all sorts, and he's got the wolf howls and the music in the background, and it's, it's really going to be a lot of fun to, to see how it turns out. So be on the lookout for that. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and one last thing is yeah, that uh, yeah. in, uh, I don't know if you can yes. see that. Yes, can. You see yes. is that it's a skull. Yes. It's both a cave and a skull. My, uh, my publisher sort of merged. This is a mountain up there. And so that part's a cave, but th this part's the skull down here. Well, it's called <laughs> the people eaters. Yes. And it's the it's the next book of the series. It's going to be out in February. It would have been out in November, but uh, I am uh, hopeful. I've got. Uh, I don't know if you have. Have you ever read any Michael or Kathleen Gear books? They've written more than fifty books and sold more than eighteen million copies, and uh, very polished, very excellent writers and. Uh, especially if you like paleo Native American kind of stories, they're, they're, they're really good authors. And uh, they're both archeologists. So there's a lot of, again, a lot of factual material in their books. It, they're all fiction, but uh, they're based on fact, like what I like to read myself. And uh, anyway, they are currently reading um, the manuscript of the people eaters. Okay. And, uh, I'm hoping to get their endorsement. And uh, that's basically the whole reason I held off from having the book uh, come out in November. It's going to come out in February now. The, re the reason I call it the people eaters is that uh, evidence of Neanderthal cannibalism has been found at eight 
different sites in Europe. And um, Svante Pabo, you may recognize that name. He's the guy that first sequenced the Neanderthal genome. Okay. He has been quoted as saying, uh, Neanderthal cannibalism, uh, evidence of Neanderthal cannibalism from broken bones to extract marrow to charring of the bones uh, is found in more often than not. And so Neanderthal cannibalism was not uncommon. And as I say, it's been found, it's been documented at at least eight different sites in, in Europe, all over Europe, from Belgium to France to Spain. And one of the most tragic um, cases was found in El Cidron, Spain, where 13 individuals, Neanderthal individuals, had been, had all been killed butchered and eaten, cooked and eaten. And uh, the best guess of researchers is these weren't people just eating their dead. These were one Neanderthal group coming in, capturing an, a clan, and then systematically eating them. So uh, that's why uh, my homo sapiens are nervous about at least one tribe of Neanderthals uh, who tend to be people eaters, people eaters and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that's why the book, how the book got its name. But it's again based on really solid facts. Yeah. So, and a lot I, I've I've read that a lot um, of people believe that it could be uh, almost on a, a spiritual level, meaning that you know if you ingest their body yeah. in a sense, you you become them or or you acquire their strengths and their abilities and their knowledge right. you know so well you look around the homo sapien population and there's there's probably a handful maybe two handfuls of different reasons that various tribes cannibalized one of them being to get get the strength of their adversary mm -hmm. one of them being to partake of their relatives or whatever you know there's a whole variety sure. not to waste the protein yeah uh, and then some some uh, Homo sapien tribes have actually developed a taste for it and do hunt for uh, prey, uh, human prey. So uh, it's a variety of reasons, I think, at least in Homo sapiens, and I believe probably was in Neanderthals as well. Well, even, I mean, you can even go even more recent than Neanderthals. There were uh, tribes who practice cannibalism. I mean, you know, in, in right. other countries, I mean, as you know, whatever, right. two, not even thousand, not even thousands years ago. I mean, hundreds of years ago, you know, so. Yeah, until just 50 years ago, that's, that's documented in uh, the People Eaters has 85 references and it, doc it has probably uh, eight or 10 references on both Neanderthal and Homo sapien cannibalism. And hmm. yeah, it gets into exactly what you're just saying. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you about because I've seen something uh, on, on your website or something that mentioned people eaters as a book, and I couldn't find it. So I thought maybe because I know in your uh, mock two in the uh, mammoth people, it, it references uh, people eaters, you know, and uh, that's why I thought, well, maybe that was confused that way. So now I understand that you have a new book coming out. So. The people eaters, it starts out with the uh, breathtaking event right at the bat where uh, you've, you've read about Nuri. She is yes, uh, yes. probably the main homo sapien female character in, in Maktu. Yeah. And uh, in the people eaters, Nuri is captured 
by the Shiv, and they are the the people eater tribe of of, of Neanderthals. And okay. so uh, she's fighting. She's worried about being eaten. She's I'll I'll just tell you she's pregnant. Yeah. Okay. She's worried about the health of her child. She's worried about being eaten. She's worried about being raped. Uh, all those things are hmm. part of the problem. And so uh, she uh, she's uh, in this book. She is uh, at least the first half of the book. She is the the real stud of the book. She is she takes charge and she uh, she doesn't wait for. She hopes that uh, that Maktu will come rescue her, rescue her but yeah. she, she takes matters into her own hands and she is a star and, <laughs> and she's a very strong woman in this in this book, just as awesome. she is in the first book. Oh, I can't so. wait, can't wait to read it. So, well, okay, so let's reference back. To, you, you have time or you got to get going? Yeah, I can, I can. I got just a few more. I got like two more things I wanted to ask you, but just to reference. You know how we were talking about uh, E.A. Meigs, you know, uh, a friend of ours, uh, like her series just keeps going and keeps going and she just can't like it just keeps coming to her. Is this something with you as well that this this story just keeps coming to you and keeps coming to you? I have a third book in me. Okay. I don't know beyond that how much more. Uh, <laughs> but Elka, uh, the hybrid yes. child will be one of the stars of the, the either this next book or the book after that. And gotcha. so, uh, so that's good. that's what I'm angling at. And, and I'll just tell you that Elka develops uh, based on Pat Shipman's book, The Invaders, and uh, her her theory that we um, domesticated wolves. Yeah. Um, Elka turns out that she uh, her nickname is Sleeps with Wolves. And so uh, she she has a propensity a, a real power to uh, to uh, bond with at least a couple of wolves that she sort of grew up with. Good, so, good, awesome. I won't tell you any more than that. No, but. that's fine, absolutely. And and look, just, just, if it, when you're ready to release those give me an email shoot me an email i would love to have you back on just to promote your oh, books great. i'm happy with that, that. I, I love doing that and yeah i would love to hear from you when it comes time for that so just to, to kind of wrap things up the, the the two questions i have in a sense so first one is in your opinion what's the most significant discovery of all like with neanderthals what do you in your opinion what do you think was the biggest discovery the greatest discovery so far well, I think it's Fonte Pabo's uh, sequencing the Neanderthal genome and determining that, yes, indeed, we had interbred with them. And okay. uh, the average person of Eurasian extraction has a little over 2%. And uh, that had been hotly debated because the, the mitochondrial DNA, uh, I'm reading a fascinating book by... Uh, Bill Bryson. I don't know if you've ever read any of his, his books, but he's got one out called The Body. And in it, he talks about the DNA. Every cell in your body has DNA. In fact, every cell, if you take the little strands of DNA, every cell has about a meter of DNA. And since you have probably 25 trillion cells in your body, he, he says your DNA stretched end to end could stretch past Pluto and back. That's how much DNA we have. But most of it is in uh, 
is uh, at least a lot of it is in mitochondria because their mitochondrial DNA is so much more common than your nuclear DNA. Okay. And so, uh, but the mitochondrial DNA only has 16,000 base pairs and it's only passed from mother to daughter. Well, it seemed to be showing that we had not interbred with, with Neanderthals because apparently um, that the, the uh, mitochondrial, the uh, Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA went extinct somewhere along the line in our, in our, uh, in our heritage. But the, the uh, full genome, the 3 billion base pairs that Sponte Pabo and others now have, have published, it documents without a doubt that we did interbreed with them. And, and we got some, uh, as we say, we got a lot of good things and we got a lot of bad things. By the way, we got some genes that make us more prone to a serious reaction from COVID. And we got some genes from them that, that seem to help. So depending on which Neanderthal genes you got, your Neanderthal genes could cause you real problems with COVID or it could actually help you a little. So, yeah. uh, hmm. yeah, I would love to have uh, an episode with someone who, you know, really has. So I guess maybe Savante Pablo, who who really, uh, you know, is 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 in depthly knowledgeable about our genome and you know how they affected us. You know, I would love to have a conversation with someone about that. Definitely. So maybe I'll actually see if I can get a hold of him. But uh... so the, well, Chris, Stringer, Chris Stringer would be a good one. David okay. Reich. David Reich is so busy. I don't think he ever. Um, but Chris Stringer has responded to my emails, and he's a Facebook friend of mine. Uh, he's he's top notch. Uh, another person. Let's see. Um, oh, who is some of the other ones? Eska Willerslav. I think he's probably not going to be too. Uh, available. He's again very, very busy. Mm -hmm. Not that Chris uh, Stringer, he's busy too. But oh, sure. Yeah, he did absolutely. find time to write. He did time, find time to write a book called the the uh, the last survivors. The plural survivors. The last survivor is a book about Afghanistan that you oh, don't want to okay. read. Uh, at least um, not in the vein of trying to get information about Neanderthals, but uh, Chris Stringer's book is excellent. Uh, and uh, he was interviewed, look up his interview with Stephen Colbert. Okay. And it is funny. Yeah, it is really funny. I think you'd get a big kick out of it. It's only about three or four minutes long, but uh, he's talking about his book there, but uh, Colbert is really, <laughs> he's really funny. <laughs> gotcha. And so uh, the, the one other thing is now what what are you what do you think or what are you hoping will be the next significant discovery? You know, based on a lot of things that we know already, yeah. what are you what are you hoping the next big discovery could be? Yeah, well, I would like to know uh, a variety of things. Um, there uh, is in Africa. Uh, the, the genes, our homo sapien genes in Africa indicate that there's at least one mystery uh, donor to our genetics that we don't even know about. And then elsewhere in, in Asia, and uh, probably in, in Europe as well, but certainly in Asia, some of the genetics there seem to show that uh, there's a donor, uh, another homo, uh, 
species that donated to our gene pool that we don't know about there either. Could be Homo erectus, could be, um, and it could be Homo erectus through Denisovans. Denisovans may have bonded with Homo erectus and then had sex with us and delivered us Homo erectus genes that way. Uh, we're, we're just on the cusp of learning so much from all this ancient DNA analysis. And, uh, yeah. and as I say, it, it's just growing exponentially what we're getting out of that. I think over this next few years, we're going to be every month, you're going to be finding out some awesome new awesome. breathtaking yeah. discovery. So, yeah, it's, it, it is exciting and definitely exciting time. I mean, you know, like I said, I, you know, I, I was not in depth in Neanderthals or, you know, what prehistory and, um, you know, but since I've gotten into it, it, it seemed like it's growing, like you said, exponentially just in the time that I've been into it, which has only been a year this month, you know, that I've had this podcast. And uh, it's, it's definitely exciting. It's, it's, there seems to be so much more interest in it now. And, and I'm, I'm loving it. It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's fantastic. So. Well, I have a glass of wine in my future. So uh. <laughs> I've actually been sipping on one now. So <laughs> Well, Dr. Baca, well, I, I appreciate everything, man. And thank you again for, uh, uh, you know, dealing with my mishap with the scheduling. And, uh, you know, like I said, uh, you have an open invitation, open door anytime you have something you want to talk about or promote, just get a hold of me and we'll have you back on. Well, thanks, Anthony. It's been a real pleasure. Now, the, the link, I think you, you might have put the link so everyone can get you how. How can everyone get your information? Yeah, um, this is probably the best one. Um, okay. All right. Facebook page at author Neil Bakovan. Okay. Awesome. And author Neil Bakovan. Neil Bakovan is hard to spell. I'll just t tell you that a lot of people make put an R in Brockovan or whatever, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, uh, I think people are really going to like it. It, it has uh, generally something about Neanderthals at least every other week and yeah. Lately, it's been more often than that. So, uh, awesome. Well, Dr. Balkov, I, I can't wait to sit down with you again and again. I, I appreciate your time and uh, enjoy your glass of wine. I'm going to enjoy finishing mine. And, uh, you know, like I said, I can't wait to talk to you again. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for this, Anthony. All right. Thank you. Have a good night Bye -bye. now. You too. Well, there it is, Cave Dwellers. The first step of the second season. I truly cannot thank you all enough for the wonderful support you show the podcast and me. And I promise to strive to bring you all awesome guests and fantastic content for your listening pleasure. One of my goals this season is to get all the episodes uploaded to YouTube just for another platform for you to hopefully enjoy the Neanderthal mind. Also, Spoiler alert, I may be bringing on a co-host to sit with me for some of the conversations and as well maybe have some one-on-one -on -one conversations with my co-host as long as we can work out the logistics to get us on the same schedule. I am super excited about this next season and I hope you will be as well. Again, thank you so much for your dedication and support of the Neanderthal Mind and I hope you would join me for the next episode. And as I always like to end, thanks for listening to the Neanderthal Mind podcast. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you love what you've heard, please subscribe, 
rate, and review the Neanderthal Mind podcast wherever you download your podcasts. And if you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast as much as we hope you have, please recommend the Neanderthal Mind to them. Until next episode, my fellow cave dwellers, don't forget, leave your cave drawings and comments on our wall at theneanderthalmind.com.